This is the Cop Thing Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey, and my guest is Commander Brad Hazlett. And the topic is going to be a couple things, but one thing for sure I want to talk about is your role in the SWAT unit. Okay. SWAT, no, SWAT unit, SWAT team. SWAT team. SWAT team. Um, I called you Commander, which um, I just want to quick, I never, I'm not sure who listens to this thing. If they're St. Paul people or whatever. But let me just explain the rank just real quick. At St. Paul, we have officer rank. We have the next promotion then would be sergeant rank. Then above that is commander. And then the appointed position of senior commander and deputy chief, assistant chief. And when I explain to people, the chief chief. So so you're a commander. Yes. All right. Welcome. Thanks for coming to oh, the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um you just said on the way over there was some violence in the city you heard on the radio or something. Yeah, right now, East Side, East District police officers are looking for at least one shooting suspect. They've just had a victim that's been shot at least twice. They have a perimeter set up, and they are bringing, bringing in the canines, and they have uh, got a perimeter set up, crime scene tape set up, and they are in the process of searching for the shooter or shooters. Huh. Now... You said perimeter. Are other cities as good at perimeter work as our city seems to be? I mean, we're like really into establishing perimeters and work, and maybe it's because of our strong canine history, maybe. Right. So we've got a couple things going for us in terms of how to the quality of our perimeters. One is that we have a lot of police officers that are working in a condensed space, so they can set up a, a very effective perimeter quickly, which is the key because you want to encompass the area where your suspect is before he can get out of that space. So having, having a lot of police officers definitely helps. The second thing that helps is we do a lot of perimeters. We do, unfortunately, have a lot of violent crime, uh, a lot of aggravated assaults, shots, fires, carjackings. And when suspects flee from a vehicle or from a crime scene, the best way to catch them is to set up a very robust perimeter bring in our world-class canines that Brady Harrison was talking about uh, last week. And if we can get, if, if the perimeter is solid enough and tight enough, the suspect will see that and try to, try to basically lay down, try and find a place to hide under a porch, under a car, in a bush. And the, the canine is almost never fooled by that. Mm -hmm. He's going to pick up on that human scent. He's going to lead the, the handler and the cover officers right to that suspect. So perimeters are key in in capturing suspects that commit violent crimes well I, that's true i suppose too because some areas just don't have the manpower the person power to create it also i just know we're really disciplined about it you're expected to do your part and do it do it right uh, take a perimeter position and such that's definitely one of the keys and you hit on it is that everybody's got to do their part and there are certain roles and one of those roles if you're on the perimeter is to stay inside your vehicle, or if you do exit your vehicle, is to stay with your vehicle. You don't want to contaminate the perimeter. You don't want to contaminate the scent trail. You just want to have eyes on, and you're basically setting up a fence that 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 will um, that will basically tell the suspect. You know, he says he's running through these yards and he's seeing squad cars on every corner. Yeah. He's like, I can't get out of this. Find a place to hide, and that's that's exactly what we want him to do. Nice. So um, how long have you been at St. Paul Police Department? I have been a police officer for 24 years, all of which have been with St. Paul. Oh, 
And then uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Washington, Iowa, population 7,000. Washington, Iowa. Mm-hmm. There's probably a Washington in most states. I think there is. Where, where, in, Washington, where in Iowa is it? So it would be 30 miles south of Iowa City, which is where the University of Iowa, the Hawkeyes, are. Yeah, that's where my dad went to college. I was born oh, in Mason City. Oh, outstanding. Go Hawkeyes. I was born in Mason City myself. Um, and then you, did, did you grow up on a farm or what? A lot of people assume that if you're from Iowa, you grew up on a farm. <laughs> which I, I did. <laughs> and I did not grow up on a farm, although I grew up in a very uh, farming-centric community. Yeah. Most of my friends were farmers. I did a lot of work. On farms, I baled hay, I detasseled corn, I walked beans, I fed cows, pigs, you name it, growing up. Did you have a big family or a small family? I have three brothers. Uh, one, my older brother is a firefighter. My next, or my youngest brother is a police officer down in Muscatine, Iowa. And then my next younger brother, he was a smart one who did not go into public service and he, uh, he makes quite a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, where, where are you in the family? I'm number two of four. Number two. And three cops in the family? Uh, two, two police oh, officers a and, and a hose yeah. dragger. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Um, and then uh, what did you do right out of high school? I attempted college and did not do so well. I, uh, I, police officers, most police officers that you talk to will tell you that they knew at a very young age they wanted to be a police officer. Perhaps they had a, a role model, father, mother, uncle, grandfather, an older brother, older sister that were police officers and they were inspired to be a police officer. When I was growing up, I actually didn't like police. I I viewed the police as someone who inhibited my ability to have fun. Um, So I was was not your role model kid. I was, in fact, a juvenile delinquent. I I had quite a few run-ins with the police and not positive ones where I was the troublemaker. Uh, came from a relatively poor home, poor family. Both my parents worked. My dad worked several jobs. My dad started out working at, at Hy-Vee. He was, he was fired there for basically sweethearting is when my, it's called a term when my, my mom would come in, she would buy groceries, but dad would only charge, you know, he'd, he'd ring up the bread and, and the eggs, but he wouldn't charge for the milk and the, you know, the T-bone steaks. And he got caught and he was fired. Incidentally, I was I was hired there and fired about ten years later for stealing beer out the back. So I was, I had quite a few run-ins. You were uh, sweethearting yourself. It sounds like right. That one. Yeah, I guess in in that respect, I was. I never looked at it that way, but you you are correct. <laughs> but that's a kind of neat story. Your mom and dad started that way. Okay. So yeah. anyway, you were moving you moving uh, stock out the back door. Yeah, I was moving uh, some product out the back and uh, I made the mistake of showing a friend how to, how to do it. <laughs> and I was I was pretty good at it. I didn't I, I didn't get caught. Uh, my friend started doing it and then he got caught and then of course he dimed me out. Well, Brad Brad taught me how to steal beer. I'm like, so thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah. So that's uh that's one little glimpse. I had a few other run-ins well, with law enforcement, uh, public intoxication, motor vehicle theft, criminal damage to property. I was not a good kid. Wow. I was not even despite the fact that that uh, I went to church every Sunday. I I didn't behave uh, according to the lessons that I was being taught in church, and I was I was not a good kid. I was I was not a good student. And I was somebody who sought negative attention as a as an adolescent boy, and so after graduating high school, I went on to college, a community college in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 
And once I got to that point, it was basically all bets are off. I've got no parental supervision. I've got nobody that I'm accountable to. And it was a seven days a week party. Well, needless to say, at the end of the school year with a 1.3 GPA, the, the community college said, hey, thanks, but, but no thanks. Don't bother coming back next year. And so I was at truly at a crossroads in my life. I was hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things. And it dawned on me that this isn't, the, I'm, I'm, I'm built for something better than this. Um, so I knew that I needed to do something better. And I actually started contemplating going into the military. And I knew that if I was going to go into the military, that it was going to be the Marine Corps. Um, throughout my childhood, I did a tremendous amount of reading military books. I would check out every book on World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam that I could get. And I would actually ask the librarian to, to get more. I couldn't read enough about it. So I knew that, that there was a, a bigger, a better purpose out there. I just hadn't come to the, the conclusion that that was my path and I still wasn't quite there yet. So I, after uh, basically being kicked out of college, I took a, a construction job where I drove a bulldozer. We did some uh, excavation, making highways and, and uh, things like that. And when I was driving to this construction job, um, I had a very bad accident on my motorcycle. I actually hit a deer. I was doing 85 miles an hour and uh, it, it was a pretty bad deal. I was coming downhill the deer stepped out in front of me and I was doing 85 so I'm like well there's not a whole lot I can do I can't really swerve and miss I can't I can't lay the bike down so I hit the deer and I was actually supposed to go to I was supposed to leave for the Marine Corps in two weeks so this was kind of like my last week at this job but then I hit this deer and uh, messed myself up pretty good I I remember when I hit the deer at such at, at that high speed I instantly blacked out and I came to on the next hill, and I don't remember standing up, I don't remember getting up, but I remember being on my feet, and there was a lady to the left of me saying, are you okay? And I look over, and there's a vehicle that had, had driven up next to me, and she goes, are you okay? And I said, I, I think I am. She goes, well, you don't look very, very good. Why don't you get in the car, and uh, I'm a nurse on the way to the hospital, I'll take you there. So I go to the hospital and it actually wasn't that bad for all things considered. I broke my wrist. I took a lot of uh, tissue and skin off my right shoulder and the helmet, thankfully that I was wearing, bore the brunt of the impact. I, I wore a basically a braided uh, significant part of the back of the helmet where my head would have made contact with the pavement. And uh, that's kind of when I knew that there's, I, I, I've, got a, I've got to change. I, I can't keep doing this. And that was uh, the last time I was ever on a motorcycle was that day because I kind of had a, I didn't kind of, I had a brush with death and I, I didn't, didn't care for that. So needless to say, my enlistment into the Marine Corps was delayed. It took about, I think, eight weeks or so to heal up from that. And then, then it was time to leave for the, for the Marine Corps out in San Diego. So I get on a bus to give me the bus tickets a greyhound takes me to des moines where where all all branches go through what's called the military entrance processing center it's called meps so you take a phys your final physical there and then you you finally you raise your right hand and you take the oath you know to defend the country against all enemies foreign and domestic all of that and then a lady hands me a plane ticket and says okay well tonight you're gonna 
check into this hotel. There'll be a shuttle that takes you there in the morning. A shuttle will take you to the airport. You're going to fly, fly out to San Diego, but you've got to lay over in Dallas, Texas. Shouldn't be a problem. You have to be there by midnight, but your plane lands in San Diego around 8 p.m. So you shouldn't have any issues getting to the, you know, the airport on time. Once you're at the airport, there's going to be a bus that's going to pick you up and they'll, they'll deliver you to um, Marine Corps Recruit Depot. So I'm like, okay, all right, this is good. And keep in mind at this point, I had never flown before. I'd led a very, a very sheltered life up to this point. And uh, because of my rebellious lifestyle, I had very, very long hair. Long, I, I, <laughs> regardless, I, I, I never played a musical instrument in my life. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, so I had no musical gifts whatsoever, but I fancied myself as an 80s rock and roller, right? So I had this ridiculously long hair, and uh, the only advice I got before leaving uh, for boot camp was, and this, and I heard this from several people, oh, you're, you're going to boot camp, kid. All right, well, here's some advice for you. Lay low, don't let them know your name, and just keep a low profile. Okay, got it, I can do that, not a problem. So I get the plane tickets and I head to the airport and my first, first uh, flight goes fairly well. I land in Dallas. I'm nervous as heck because I've never been on an airplane before. I, mean, I know that I'm headed to boot camp where things are going to be hectic to say the least. So we land in Dallas and I transfer over to a different plane and we sit on the tarmac for an hour, hour and a half, two hours go by and we haven't taken off. Yet. I'm like, well, this doesn't seem normal. Then the pilot gets on and says, we're experiencing a lot of uh, different hydraulic issues. This, we're not going to, we're going to deadline this plane. We're going to have to get you on a different plane. We're, that plane's inbound from, I can't remember where, but it, it wasn't even there yet. I keep looking at my watch and I'm like, I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to be there at eight. At the best, I'm going to be there at 11 midnight. And now we're really starting to cut it close. But that the next, the transfer plane doesn't get there for two more hours. So I'm like, well, before I even leave Dallas, I'm, I'm not going to make it on time. So this, this is, none of this is any good. So I land in San Diego and it's already two o'clock in the morning. And I know that I am in a world of trouble because I'm already AWOL and it hasn't even, I haven't even spent one day in the military yet and I'm already <laughs> absent without leave. So I know that this isn't going to end well and, I've, and so much for, you know, keeping a low profile. Um, so one of the things with the Marine Corps that's iconic about the Marine Corps that just about everybody will talk about is standing on the yellow footprints. Right outside of Marine Corps Recruit Depot is, is a set of 40 yellow footprints, and they're all in, in neat rows, and they're covered, and they're aligned. And when you get there and you, you're on a bus, the drill instructor comes on, and he's yelling and screaming, and he's giving orders to get off my bus, and you're going to leave in an orderly fashion, but you're going to leave in a rapid fashion. You're going to get on these yellow footprints, and you're going to stand there. You're going to face the front, you're going to keep your mouth shut, and you're going to do what you're told. All of that. Well, I never got to stand on the yellow footprints. We bypassed the yellow footprints. So I land in San Diego. It's now 2 in the morning, and guess what? There is no Marine Corps bus there. There's nobody there in a military uniform, and the, basically the airport is at its skeleton crew. There's nobody, nobody really coming. We're the last flight to come in. And so I'm pretty distraught. I don't know what to do. And so I go up to uh, one of the, the, the ladies at the counter, and I'm like, hey, my name's Brad from Iowa. I'm supposed to uh, go to Marine Corps boot camp. What do I do? 
And she goes, oh, the bus left two, three hours ago. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. But how do I, how do I get, get the boot camp? And this old man behind me hears me and goes, where are you trying to get to, son? I said, I'm trying to get to Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. He goes, I know, I know exactly where that's at. I was in the Navy. I'll take you there. And everything I know about stranger danger and everything that my mother told me about talking to stranger and getting to strangers vehicles is starting to kick in. I'm like, gosh, I don't know if this is a good idea, but I also know that every, every minute that ticks off the clock and I'm not at Marine Corps recruit Depot, I'm in bigger and bigger trouble. So he's like, so I'm like, what do I got to lose? Um, I get in his van and it's a, it's a van with no windows, <laughs> you'll figure. And to this guy's credit, he takes me straight to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot and he drops me off at the front gate with two, where the two MPs are working. And they look in and they go, who are you? I said, well, I'm Brad from Iowa. I'm here for boot camp. <laughs> they're like, oh, okay, well. And I can tell that they're like, they've got this expression on their face and they didn't say it, but now I know that they were like, I can't believe you came here without getting a freaking haircut, kid. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. This gets better. So... The Marines say, all right, thank you for bringing him. We'll take him from here. They, they, they put me in another vehicle, and they drive me right past the yellow footprints to where we're in processing. Now, unbeknownst to me, my entire platoon is on, on the other side of this steel door and brick building. Actually, I actually think it was a stucco building because it's in San Diego. So I can hear a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming on the other side of that door. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm, if I'm ready for this. And so I've got my little duffel bag with me and I'm reporting for Marine Corps recruit depot training. The MP knocks on the door and all of a sudden the yelling stops and Joel instructor comes to the door. He looks at the MP and he looks at me and I can tell right away, things are not going to go well. And he goes, who the hell are you? I said, well, I'm Brad from Iowa. I'm here for boot camp." <laughs> and that's when all hell broke loose. These drill instructors just who are you? Why are you late? You're AWOL. What, who do you think you are? You don't think that you need to follow the rules? And I'm like, my airplane, but, but, but. The, the, the hydraulics on the plane. <laughs> and they were, of course, having none of it. They knew, they knew exactly that, you know, I wasn't in trouble for AWOL, but I didn't know that. I, sure. thought, I, I thought I'm going to the brig or something on day one. I yeah. haven't even been to boot camp yet. So they start yelling and screaming and I am as nervous as I was before walking in there, I, that now goes to a level 11. I am absolutely terrified beyond, it was the most scared I've ever been in my life, right? So what had happened prior to me getting there is here's my entire platoon that I'm supposed to be a part of. They've all got their heads shaved. They're all wearing Marine Corps woodland camouflage uniforms and black boots. Here's me in jeans, tennis shoes, a t-shirt and hair halfway down my back. And these guys all were, they were dripping with sweat because these guys have been doing push-ups, sit-ups and running and flutter kicks and you name it. And they've been doing sprints for the last hour. And then I show up and they're like, oh, well, thank God this guy's here. Right. As much as my life sucks right now, I'm glad I'm not him because he's in a world of hurt. So the two drill instructors start, start going to work on me and they're like, empty your bag, get everything out of your bag, get everything out of your bag right now. And you know, I'm a civilian. I don't know any better. So I drop down to a knee. I slowly unzip my bag and I start, here's a pair of underwear. <laughs> here's a left running shoe. Here's a right. I get everything out of the bag right now. I said right now. What part of right now don't you understand? So I start going faster. I'm like, okay, here's two socks. Here's, here's another pair of underwear. And I said, right now, do you not understand that? And he grips the bag out of my hands, raises it head high, 
dumps it upside down. And just like that scene out of Full Metal Jacket when Gunnery Sergeant Hartman dumps the footlocker private pile and a jelly donut comes out, a Vidal Sassoon full-sized hairdryer hits the deck. <laughs> and these guys, if I thought they were on fire before, these guys go absolutely ballistic what in the f is that why do you have a hair dryer in my marine corps recruit depot what do you think you are you going to the beach and then the third drill instructor comes over now they completely leave the platoon alone and all three drill instructors basically do a shark attack on me and my world comes crashing down like i don't know if i really want to be here right now and it was one of the uh, one of the worst experiences in my life but it gets worse because evidently the, the barbershops only open twice a week. So while my entire platoon is already in full uniform with completely shaved heads, I don't get a haircut or a uniform for three days. I was toxic. Nobody would come near me. Nobody would talk to me. I was like poison. So uh, I got off to a rather rocky start. But I learned to absolutely love the Marine Corps. I loved everything it stood for. I loved its history, its traditions. And I really became, a, 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 I guess what I'd say, a model Marine. I, 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 I finally discovered something that had been missing my entire life. Discipline, organization, a path to somewhere. All the things that, that I was missing in my childhood, the Marine Corps provided. And I was at a crossroads in my life where I, either need, I needed to make a change or I was going to end up in jail or dead. And the Marine Corps is that salvation, which... Which, when I look back and, and, you know, on Veterans Day and Memorial Day and things like that, people hate, will say, thank you for your service. I always say the service did way more for me than what I ever did for it because it truly, it truly turned my life around and made me, made me a much better person than I, than I was before. So that's kind of how, how things got started. And then, so I, I'm in boot camp, I graduate boot camp, and then all Marines go to Marine combat training. You do two months of that, and then I signed up in the infantry. So after Marine combat training, all infantry Marines go to two more months of School of Infantry. And while I was at School of Infantry, um, we had a weekend formation where Marine Corps Force Recon came down and basically did an introduction to what they are. Now, Marine Corps Force Recon, for those that don't know, is basically the special forces of the Marine Corps. These guys are, they, they train every aspect of amphibious warfare, coming out of submarines, um, assaulting beaches at, at night. They parachute behind enemy lines. They do kind of all the sexy things that, that the military is, is capable of. And I wanted that, and I wanted that in the worst way. Well, these guys show up and say, hey, we're, we're looking for a handful of Marines to come join Force Recon. Next Saturday, we're going to have tryouts. And I'm like, this is my shot. This every everything is just coming to fruition, and this is this is a dream come true. All I want is a shot. Just give me a shot. And you have to be an incredibly strong swimmer to to get there. I know that you had a had a great interview with Ed Dion, who is an, a fantastic storyteller, by the way. And he talked a lot about his Navy dive experience and, and some of the the training that he did in, in the pool and, and how how truly difficult it is. Well, I was fortunate in the sense that because I, I, I grew up in a, in a poor family, um, both parents were working, and they couldn't afford any kind of any semblance of a daycare, but they didn't need to. They were pretty smart. They basically purchased every summer a $10 uh, 
summer pass to the municipal swimming pool. I grew up in a swimming pool. The lifeguards were my, my daycare providers. As soon as that pool opened at noon, I was there till it closed at 5, 5 p.m., and I lived in the swimming pool. I became a pretty good swimmer. So the next week, I hop on the, a couple of uh, what we'd call five-ton trucks, and we leave about, I think it was 18, 18 Marines, head up to San Onofre to try out for Force Recon. And the tryouts was very water intensive. You're immediately, they throw you in a pool and the rule right off the bat is don't even, don't even think about touching the sides of the pool. At no time will you touch the sides of the pool. So anytime that you're not uh, doing a swim, a rescue, you're not being uh, tasked with doing a certain maneuver, you're dog paddling because you're in the deep end of the pool. You're never in the shallow and you're always in the deep end. And so they right off the bat, okay, do 400 meters freestyle, 400 meters backstroke, 400 meters um, breaststroke. And they're kind of gauging how, how comfortable you are in the water. And then it's, okay, well, now doggy paddle for 40 minutes. To stay in the deep end in 40 minutes, you got to stay afloat. And then things, things continue, continually get harder and harder and harder. Okay, now take this lead pipe that's underwater in the bottom of the pool take it to the other side of the pool don't come up for air and one by one swimmers start to like i can't i'm not cut out for this i can't do it and they would you know they'd pluck them out of the pool one at a time and it kept getting harder and harder and harder and then it was okay go get your camis on get out of the pool get your camis on put them up over the top of your your pt uniform get back in the pool now we're gonna start jumping off off the platform and now we're gonna start doing rescues uh, rescues where an instructor would would um, imitate a drowning victim and you've got to go up and you've got to rescue them and the key is to tell them what to do calm down you got to go up and rescue them and as soon as and they'll calm down they'll at least they'll act like they're they will portray like they're calm and of course when you get there they start throwing elbows and and kicks and everything else and and so that's difficult and then it was take this 25 pound weight hold it above the water you are not allowed to get the weight wet don't care if you go underwater don't care if you can't breathe but that weight better not get wet and this goes on and on and on and on and on finally there's there's about seven eight people left once you come out of the pool six seven hours later now you're going to go run an entire marine corps pt test three mile run 20 pull-ups 80 sit-ups in two minutes and i'm absolutely smoked i mean everyone is exhausted but i know that i need to put put out otherwise i'm not going to make the cut at the end of the day they call three names they bring us into a room and they say, congratulations, you guys made it. After you get out of the School of Infantry, you're coming to Force Recon. And I walked out of there with, I'm absolutely beaming because I know that I've, I've arrived. I've finally done something that's, that's, that's notable. Something, this is, at, the, at that point in my life, it's the greatest achievement I've, I've had. But, there's always a but. Very next week, and I'm on cloud nine all week. I'm like, this is so amazing. This is going to be so cool. I can't wait to tell everybody that I'm going to Force Recon after School of Infantry. Very next week, Presidential Honor Guard shows up. Same, sim, similar formation or similar format as the week before. They get everybody, the whole battalion in the stands. They do an introduction. Hey, these are the Presidential Honor Guard. It's stationed in Washington, D.C., and they're going to talk about what they do. So they go through the whole spiel, and I'm like, I'm not even really listening because that doesn't pertain to me because I'm, I'm going to Force Recon, so none of this matters to me. And they start talking, okay, well, here's, we're going to grab a few people, and you're going to be, you're going to be getting orders to Washington, D.C., be part of the Presidential Honor Guard. 
like, okay, all right, all right if you're married, fall out. If you have children, fall out. If you're under five foot ten, fall out. If you have any non-judicial punishment, which is military, but you haven't do, didn't do anything terribly bad, but you did something bad enough to get NJP. If you've got NJP, fall out. If you've got office hours, which is another form of punishment, fall out. If you have any bad proficiency in conduct marks in your service record book, fall out. If you've got any ailments, fall out. Any physical conditions, fall out. I start looking around to the left and to the right, and now there's maybe 30 people left in the entire battalion that didn't fit all that criteria. Then they bring us into a room, they look at our service, service record book, and then they conduct an interview. And they ask, ask a bunch of questions about, you know, could you get a top secret security clearance? Do you, would you be okay working around the president of the United States? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess so. And at the end of the day, they're like, well, congratulations, you made it. You're going to Washington, D.C., part of the presidential army. I'm like, no, no, I, I, I can't. I've already got orders to go to the Marine Corps Force Recon. They're like, not now, you don't. We have oh. priority. And I'm like, well, dang, that just uh, Did I tell completely... you I didn't like the president? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have. I should have. It was uh, George Herbert Bush at the time. Yeah. And uh, there was really nothing I can do. And to this day, oh. I, I kind of kick myself. Maybe I, I should have just snuck out of the formation at that time because I, I could I should have I should have seen where this was headed right but everything worked out great I absolutely loved being stationed in Washington DC so we're at the White House all the time you're with the first first lady you're with the vice president of the United States you go to the Pentagon a lot you go to the the State Department a lot you spend a lot of time in Arlington doing funerals you spend any time that a foreign dignitary is visiting, it's customary that they lay a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So we were constantly at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And anything where the, anywhere where the president would go, any function that he attended, we were always there in dress blues for those, for those functions. And during that time, you had to have a top secret security clearance. And that was kind of touch and go because like, well, I didn't exactly have a, a spot-free childhood. I, I did have a few of those run-ins that I already mentioned, but it wasn't anything significant. It wasn't anything that prevented uh, me getting that top secret security clearance. So after four years of serving in Washington, D.C., I go to re-enlist. I want, I want to do two more years and I want maybe a shot at going to Force Recon or Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team. Now... I'd actually been to Clinton's inauguration. I was there at the Lincoln Memorial um, when he uh, did the acceptance, and then I would actually at his inauguration at the White, or excuse me, at the uh, at the Capitol building. So when Clinton came into office, he scaled down the military budget drastically. So the career planner he laughs at me. He goes, "I can't reenlist you." I said, "Why not?" He goes, "The entire infantry field is closed for the entire Marine Corps." He goes, you want to be a MP or work in bulk fuel? I said, neither one of those. He goes, well, there's nothing I can do for you. And I went home completely dejected. I'm like, I, I, I had performed in the highest fashion for four years in everything that the Marine Corps asked me to do. I had the, the highest proficiency in conduct marks, the highest PT scores, the highest everything that, that you could ask for. And now they were closing the door on me. And I was like, well, crap, what do I do now? And it just so happens that Fox's uh, uh, Cops was popular on TV. And I was like, well, maybe this cop thing isn't so bad after all. This actually kind of looks like fun. looks like they've got a lot of camaraderie. They do some, some risky things, some cool things. They get to drive fast. I'm like, well, maybe I'll just go, go be a police officer. And that's 
kind of how I came to Minnesota. I'm like, well, I don't want to go back to Iowa. So I wanted to kind of pick a major metropolitan area, Twin Cities it is, and uh, I guess the rest is, is history. Dang. You know, I think, um, <clears throat> you know what your downfall was? What's that? You spent too much time in church, the library, and the pool. It ruined me. Yeah. The chlorine. It was yeah. chlorine. What? One thing I was thinking about the Forest Recon, um, hearing you tell that story, what I'm glad for you is that you had that exhilaration of great accomplishment. So you had that experience, like I really did something great, even though it didn't come to fruition. Come to yeah, but you still had that sense of accomplishment because that was you weren't robbed of that part of it at least. Correct. Huh. The um. So that um. So the academy was nothing for you. <laughs> the, reason, <laughs> the reason I say that is when I got hired, <clears throat> married with three kids, I had a lot to lose. I had actually. Um, put all my eggs in the St. Paul PD basket and quit my other job, married with three kids. Right. Uh, so it was a huge, huge commitment to St. Paul, which is also burn the boat, right? It's um, a risky proposition. For yeah, sure. meaning you gotta you gotta succeed or there is, you, there's no you can't not succeed. Right. And I remember the academy, um, true to my nature, um, all that yelling and screaming, and you know we're trying to get rid of you kind of stuff. I believed all that, right? Um, which I'm not sure if it was actually true, but I believed it. I was that kind of earnest person. But it's really a method of checking individual metal. Yeah. What what kind of fortitude do you have? Can you handle me yelling at you and putting stress on you? It's really it's a measure of how a person copes with with stress and uncomfortability. That's yeah, I, what it's about. And I remember people in the academy talking about quitting. I'm like, whoa, what? Right. You got to make them get rid of you. You can't. Right. You can't choose that. You know that kind of thing. But one thing that the, I in retrospect, I envied the guys that had been in the military. Um, I mean, I was grateful that I had older brothers that we used to beat on each other. I mean, that was useful. <laughs> yeah, you it know? helps for uh, sure. And just in my other experiences as well. But one thing that I remember from the academy that was funny was, and you were probably the best at it, was marching. <laughs> and uh, the reason I say that is my dad. Uh, Grew up in Mason City as well, and was World War II vet, and he loved marching. He was a paratrooper, and um, and I remember thinking, I just remember he just loved marching. It was, part, and then when we marched in the academy, and and I remember Mark Farrington was our instructor, right, He's, another Marine, yeah, and he would, uh, as much as I liked marching, it didn't come natural to me, you know. What's well, not natural? You've uh, walked a certain way your entire life, and now you're having somebody tell you to walk differently. But there's got to be no one at the police department with your years of honor guard work that know that routine. As a matter of fact, I didn't. I don't know if I've seen you as part of the honor. You are part of the honor. I was. I I was not. I was asked several times. I'm like, well, I I did that oh. in Washington D.C. for the president. I I don't really want to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had the chance one time. Uh, this is, makes me old, but uh, Reagan came to uh, Spokane, Washington, when I was a paramedic out there, and I was assigned to the ambulance that was assigned to President Reagan. And um, anyway, we were, we were 24-hour shifts. I was awake for 24 hours. Great, you know, but, uh, and we followed the president around and all that. So that was pretty, that's as close as I got to that type of experience. But you you lived it for years. Well, let me tell my Ronald Reagan story. So 
I've got we, his tie clip right here. You I do seriously really? do. Uh, not his tie clip. No, he, he fainted and I snatched his tie clip. Well, yeah, no, that... no, no, they gave me a, uh, a tie clip, a uh, Ronald Reagan tie clip. I can point. That, Very that cool. Care, but anyway, I should have wore it. You should I am wearing it. You should have. No. So I was actually part, because I'm six foot three, I was immediately selected to the color guard because it, the color guard recruited people between six three and six five. I was the shortest person in my unit at six three. So we flew all over the United States, and even we did we did the fiftieth uh, anniversary of D Day in Europe. We went to Normandy. We we went to the UK. We did a lot of really neat things. And one of the other things that we did is we did a colors presentation to the graduate LSU graduation in Baton Rouge, and Ronald Reagan, former president, was the guest speaker, and he walked right past us, looked at us, and said, "Looking good, Marines." Hmm. And uh, that was that was pretty memorable. Very well, neat. and you earned that spot too, right? You yeah. earned the uh, <clears throat> you accomplish something when you get to stand where the president gets to notice you. you know? Yes. Huh. Yeah. So um, then you you ended up at St. Paul. Was that the did, uh, back when you got hired? That's when they used to have thousands of applicants for jobs. Or I don't know that we had thousands. I want to I want to say it was six six or seven hundred people that we were competing against. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, the Academy was nothing like the Marine Corps. Uh, <laughs> right. But, um, and then you got out on the street and you're like, ooh, this is what I like doing. Yeah. Did you work every district? What did you, what kind of tour I did actually you did. I FTO'd in West District and then rebid West. So I worked year and a half, two years in West on the afternoon shift. And then I bid East where I worked midnights for three years, a little over three years. And then I went to Central for a year before I went to the force unit. So I did five years on patrol uh, in all three districts. Did you have, when you started, were there, this is what a question I always, so when I started at Hennepin, I started there in 1987 on the ambulance. So when you started in 1987, I mean, I had been a paramedic elsewhere for a couple of years, but when I got to Hennepin, there were these old time guys that started on the ambulance in the 60s. Sure. You know, and... Uh, old military guys and all that that was fun do you remember some of the old cops maybe some marines that when you started that were just ending their career right so on the day shift most of those guys worked day shift for sure and, and they'd certainly earned the right to do so and yeah we had some vietnam veterans <clears throat> that were in their 60s that had been around for a long time and had seen a lot of things in their lifetimes and it was great anytime that you could just sit around eating breakfast sitting in a roll call and just listening to them because they had some amazing stories. Do you remember, how about, um, so you, um, oh, darn it, what was I going to ask you about? Oh, so your FDOs, who, who, do you remember, do you have any really favorite FDOs, anyone? Because you knew a lot. I mean, you'd been a, a rowdy kid. You'd been in the Marines. You'd accomplished these things. Mm -hmm. You were big and strong. But do you remember some, like, really uh, hard or good lessons sure a brand new so cop. i had i had jim falkowski was my primary and i think he scared me more than most marine corps drill instructors did and uh he let me know in no uncertain terms that i wasn't cutting it and mm -hmm. i i didn't have any police experience prior to this and skills i don't think does a great job preparing you for actual life on the street when you're dealing with violent people and uh, so he let me know that you're not doing well and you might not make it. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, holy cow, is he serious? <laughs> and it was it was the same yeah. same games that I should have I should have known these by now. But he 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 played the part and he let me know, you're not cutting it. Your numbers are too low. You're, you you did this wrong. You did that wrong. And uh, you know, I he had my undivided attention. Everything that he talked about, I was listening. I was intently listening and trying to make the improvements that he was talking about because I wanted nothing more than to succeed. Well, it makes you even a little more grateful for the job, too, when you know that it just didn't fall in your lap, you know. For sure. And it came at a price or whatever. Right. Yeah, good for you. What, so then, um, what do you, you, so you, did you listen to Ventura and King on their podcast? Absolutely, I did. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's your, what, what's your, you've got a starring role in that That uh, I would event. say a minor. Yeah, a let, minor, let me not say it that way. Let's minor just role. Yeah, so I was... Um, Believe it or not, that was my second officer-involved shooting that day, yeah. which uh, is incredibly abnormal. In fact, uh, the city of St. Paul's never had two officer-involved shootings in one day, certainly not one shift, not one district, but it happened that day. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually uh, wrapping up my shift, turned over the, the reins to, to John Peck, and was getting ready to go meet the guys that were in, involved in the first officer involved shooting and I'm walking out the building and I'm in the garage at East team and there is an absolute hail of gunfire. I initially thought that someone's doing a drive by on East team right now. And I remember I, I instinctively, I had a, I had my hands full. I had a water bottle. I had my lunch cooler. I had, I can't remember what else I had. I had three or four different things in my hands. I, immediately drop all of them, draw my handgun, and I head to the west-facing door, a service door by the garage, by the main entrance where the, the big uh, pull-up garage is. And I look to the north and I look to the south and I don't see anything, but I can hear yelling to the south. So I run run down there and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of starting to realize what's happening is that there's an officer-involved shooting and... You know, it's it's Dan King and, and Brian Winshura. And I went there and things were hectic to say the least. I believe it was Dave Dave Randall was putting helping Dave put on a tourniquet. There was Dan put on a tourniquet, right? Yeah, Dan was putting on his own tourniquet yeah. and Dave Randall was trying to get get it tighter mm-hmm. because Dave, Dan was kind of struggling to get it he put enough tension on it and he had he had a massive trauma to his mm-hmm. arm. Massive trauma. And there was I just remember distinctly that that huge pool of blood and I know he's I knew I knew he's in trouble he's in big trouble and so I helped Brian uh, deal with the suspect who was deceased I actually remember grabbing the shotgun in the suspect's hands and trying to take it away but the shotgun was actually tied to him and in, in each hand he had he had knives on like shoestrings tied to his wrist so that once the shotgun went dry, all he's got to do is flick his wrists up, and now he's got a knife in each hand. And I was like, "Well, this is this is odd." And I'm thinking all the things that I need to be thinking of. Okay, I'm the senior senior person here. I'm the sergeant, uh, and I'm their sergeant. Think what what's the biggest priority right now? The biggest priority is getting Dan to a hospital. So I'm calling for medics, and I'm calling for medics, and I'm calling for medics, and I'm calling for central squads to start blocking off intersections to get, get this ambulance in the absolute fastest route to regions. I get a hold of dispatch and say, let, let regions ER staff know that we've got an officer coming in with a gunshot when he's lost a lot of blood. Ambulance gets there, and like 
and you knew this, you know this better than anyone. They're trying to stabilize Dan. So they get him into the ambulance and they're trying to stabilize him, trying to get, get, uh, get the, the blood flow, the blood loss, uh, mitigated. They're trying to make sure that that tourniquet's tight enough that it's doing its job. And seconds are seeming like minutes. And I'm starting to get angry. Because why is that ambulance still here? I want that effing ambulance to Regis, and I want it there <clears throat> 10 minutes ago. So I yelled at the captain. I said, get that effing ambulance to Regions now. And he looks at me and I was like, oh, okay, I better, I better do that. So regions or uh, ambulance takes off to regions. I'm trying. Okay, what's next? What 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 else needs to be done? I'm like, okay, somebody's got to get a hold of his wife. So I'm like, okay, I'm thinking. Okay, I know Dan lives in Cottage Grove at that time. Um, and I, I grab grab an officer. I'm like, hey, I need you to head down there on the Reds to notify his wife so she can meet Dan at regions. So I'm, all these things are happening, and I'm like, okay, what else do I need to be doing? What else? Do I, okay, I need to contact my supervisor, and I'm just kind of going through all the all the checklist of the things that I, I needed to do. And it, it wasn't like this was the first time; it was the first time that I needed to do it in practice. But it wasn't the first time that I env- had envisioned this. I'd visualized visualized this happening hundreds of times. Those worst case scenarios where you you come up with plans because when the when things traumatic and complex like this happen and you'd never considered the possibility or or what that looks like trying to create a a contingency plan to that problem typically doesn't go well it's hard to create a solution to a problem you've never comprehended before so i kind of knew what i needed to do and what my job was and then john peck comes running out and so the beautiful thing is that we had plenty of leadership there we had a lot of officers looking for work and really what needed to happen after Dan left is now we got to secure the scene for evidence. And then it was a matter of getting down to the hospital and making sure that everything that needs to be done down there is being done. But I absolutely love those two. That It's such a great story. It's, it's, it's a sad story, but it's a great story because of the heroics of these two. And I know they're, they're, they're listening at this right now and going, they're like, like, we're no heroes, we're no heroes. But in my eyes, they are. They, sure. they, they absolutely performed at the optimal level and where so few officers could do what both of them did that night. It's an amazing story. Well, and you said, um, they, uh, what, I, what parallels too is that they had rehearsed in their minds. Yes, they have. Events. Yes. The, um, a couple of thoughts. I one, I'm just going to turn this into a little bit of education here because I can't help <laughs> myself because Philadelphia, I think it is just passed a law to allow officers to transport, um, certain shooting victims in their squads. Okay. Now, that's usually a sign of a dysfunction or a low, potentially a low-functioning EMS system. It can right? be indicative of that for right. sure. Um, and, and I've often thought, because I was a patrol boss in Central when Dan got shot, but I was off that night. If mm-hmm. I would have been working, obviously I'd have been at the scene and would have been a short drive there. And I've often thought, um, would I have um, thrown Dan in a squad? Load and I would, have, I would have jumped in the back with Dan and then just had someone drive. But yep. here's the hazard with that, and I just want to tell everybody. Um, it's no good to throw someone in the back of a squad that's you, their airway isn't managed. Right. Because So uh, the paramedics, they know how to manage an airway. So what are you going to do? Deliver somebody with an, you know, so it's a two-minute drive, no big deal? Yeah, that's a big deal. It is. And also the with Dan, um, if I visualized throwing him in a squad, one is direct pressure almost all the time works. Dan has that, uh, the, we have the tourniquet and a tourniquet 
applied poorly can actually cause bleeding to be worse. So a tourniquet has to be applied, um, right. uh, uh, what we just saw, vigorously, like, like we're taught. Um, but Dan was also shot twice. Correct. So one huge concern, and Dan had it because he talks, I think he either talks on the podcast or later, he was really, he knew he was shot in the torso. And he actually, that's a, that's yeah, he, a deadly spot to be shot. So right. again, you throw a guy in a car because you're, you're you can't help but focus on his gory, bloody arm wound. But then he bleeds to death because of a secondary wound. And the paramedics don't miss that stuff. That's what they do for a living. Right. So I'm not, I think their cops should rehearse that. When would you throw a cop in a squad car and drive? But a couple things. The EMS can alert the hospital better, so it doesn't do a lot of good to zoom up to the ER and then have the ER totally flat-footed Correct. for that. So you'd want to warn them. And also just the idea that you have to, you have to evaluate your options, and, um, and so you have to manage airways, you have to manage bleeding, and sometimes it may be appropriate, and cops should rehearse that or ask questions. They can welcome to ask me uh, in what scenarios might you do that. Definitely. I mean, look no further than the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, yeah. where there was a big disconnect between police and fire and fire was kind of staging and not, not, they were reluctant to come into what they would refer to as the hot zone. And police officers got so frustrated. They have got all these people that are minutes, if not seconds away from bleeding out and dying. And if they're not going to come in, then I'm going to just take them myself. And they were, and you're hundred percent correct. You were loading loading people with traumatic gunshot wounds into the backseat of a car, but they're not, they don't know to apply pressure. Some of them aren't even conscious and capable right. of applying pressure. So they're not getting that, that critical treatment that they need, which is, which is why we've created three echo and the importance and that the three echo model is, is a, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a total game changer in, in how police respond to mass casualty incidents, active shooter incidents, you look back at Columbine when uh, they responded to the Columbine High School. We didn't we didn't have a game plan for that. We'd never seen that before. Right. And we've learned a lot and we've evolved a lot since then. And but to your point, we 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 absolutely have to integrate fire, police, and EMS into one package. It's got to be collaborative effort. And we got to be on the, all in the same sheet of music. Right, and train together. Um, and back to Reagan. If you remember when Ronald Reagan was shot. Um, uh, when when he was in Spokane, they met with me because I was the paramedic, and they're like, and I was asking questions. They said, if he has a medical emergency, do what you think what you would normally do. If he's traumatized, you'll never see him. They say, because they're gonna, they've got their own way to right. Well, they'll do their own transport. But when he was shot, what he needed most was surgery. Right. Okay, because he was shot in the torso. I don't remember exactly the wound, but he had a life threatening wound. Yes, he did. And and certain wounds. Uh, if it's in the torso, direct pressure is not going to control the internal bleeding necessarily. No. So he needed surgery. So they saved his life as well as the surgeons, but they're seeing rapid transport of him. I mean, and they had planned that. They, I mean, they have since modified what they do for the president and such. But anyway, that's just an interesting topic. I just thought we'll go on that. It for sure is. Um, so, so you're um, on. Um, you're on the. Uh, What's your role on the SWAT team right now? Because you are a commander. Are you a commander on the SWAT team? I don't even know how that no. rank goes. No, so I, I haven't been on the SWAT team since I was promoted to commander. Oh, they yeah. kicked you off. Yeah. <laughs> I, Thanks I, for I, opening old wounds, <laughs> Brian. That's what that's what this podcast is about. It's called the <laughs> Old Wound Podcast. And scar tissue. Yeah. Um, so it didn't even occur to me that. So I guess I always associate well, not, with, with for, that. For what it's worth, you're not the other one. A lot of people assume that I'm still on the SWAT team. and. Yeah. Unfortunately, the day 
good news, bad news, the day that uh, I found out that I was being promoted to commander, they said, hey, congratulations. Uh, good job on the commander's test. Turn all your SWAT stuff in. You're you're off the team. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, in all fairness, I knew that that was a strong likelihood that if I did well in the commander's test, yeah. that there was already two commanders on the team that I, I, I wouldn't be able to stay on. Uh, in a leadership capacity, so I, I knew that going in. Well, I was I was glad uh, it was good for me to get promoted to sergeant and to fill to do all those jobs related to that job. But the moment the sergeant's exam came out, I was instantly depressed because I remember thinking, "My fun is over. Yeah. I'm not going to be a p- patrolman anymore." Yeah, because I knew was... I was going to do well on the test because I I just knew how I'd approach it, and plus my arc exactly of my career was something. But instantly, I remember just instantly. I know exactly what you're it's talking done. about. Yeah. Being a patrolman is, and then also too, is once you're rank, you're never a patrolman again. Correct. I mean, you, we can kind of pretend and do that work and occasionally do real police work, <laughs> but you're still not a, another cop. You're not. And, uh, that's and, it, why and we're not of, asking anybody to feel sorry for us. No. Um, because. Uh, and that's but, why a lot of great cops that just live it, love it, never take the charges test because they can't imagine having their squad care taken away from them and, and their, their beat taken away from them. They love it that much. And kudos to them. You know, my brother uh, is a retired police officer, and he worked his entire career, almost 30 years, I think. That's outstanding. Uh, and, and patrol, and he was, at the end, he was senior patrol officer, the most senior patrol right. officer. At his own parking spot, probably. He, in fact, did. Good. At his own police <laughs> car, should. I think. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, um, boy, 30 years, get your own parking spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you live in this, some of the suburb, suburban cops already have their own parking spots. I've seen probably indoors too. Yeah, indoors. That's so. That's what people need to know about St. Paul, Minnesota. There's no s- fancy indoor parking for police cars. Right, it's blue collar. It all the is way. a blue collar, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively. Yeah, you know, that's, a, if you're not a chief, you probably don't park indoors. Yeah, Matt, I remember you remember this um, being a brand new cop, and the first winter going out to a squad, trying to get it to start, <laughs> literally chopping ice out right. of the fl- floorboard like inches, <clears throat> and then the computer not the no. sc- not being able to read the c- c- screen because it just wouldn't warm For up. For the first hour. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so I remember one big event where you were running a big part. I mean, you've done a lot on the SWAT team, yep. but I remember when, uh, God bless him, Sergeant Bergeron was killed. Yes. You were in charge of what? part of that i was a a new sergeant on the team i mean i i should say that because we had a perimeter when, and we did that you did yeah. that flushing thing where you flushed them out yeah um or whatever you call it i'm somewhat ashamed to admit that i did not hear the, the pager when it went off and so i spent i spent uh five years as an officer on the swat team then i spent the next seven years as a sergeant so and and what was really unique is that Typically, when you get promoted, you have to leave the team and then wait for a spot to open up. Well, when I when I was promoted to sergeant, uh, it just so happened that that Jeff Winger and Johnny Wright both both turned in their, you know, I guess their paperwork, so to speak, or their notice that, hey, we're, we're ready to leave the SWAT team. So Dan Zebro and I, we got promoted at the same same time, same day. Um, we were both both officers on the team, and we just transitioned right into being sergeants on the team, which was a beautiful thing. So I was a very a very new sergeant when Joe Bergeron was murdered, and when the team was called out, this is back when we had pagers still. 
I slept right through the the pager. I didn't I didn't even uh, know they went off. I wake up now. This is you know the events have unfolded for probably three or four hours at this point. I'm like, oh crap! I I need to get to St. Paul right now. So I race in there, and the teams had already been formed. In fact, they were already doing doing large open field sweeps, and I really didn't have a role. I was way 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 on the absolute western edge of this line, and I really wasn't fulfilling much of a role and I just so happened to be right next to Brady Harrison my my former partner and uh all of a sudden we can hear shots being fired to the east and then Dave Longben gets on the air and and basically says that he's involved in a shooting and he needs help and I'm like well Brady and I really aren't doing much of anything over here and it and it is that exact moment we happen to be by a Ramsey County deputy sheriff I'm like Brady come with me grab your dog we jumped in this Ramsey County squad car and I said, take us to the shooting right now. Cause I knew that there was a pretty good chance that, 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 you know, they needed some, some tactical assets where the shooting was happening. And so we race over there and there wasn't a whole lot for us to do really. Cause, cause Dave did what he needed to do and he put the threat down, but we thought where, well, we knew that we were looking for two suspects at that point and we were hoping that the second suspect was going to be nearby. So we kind of locked down that area and then like, in, like so oftentimes happens, there's disinformation that the second shooter's in this house right here and officers start to set up a perimeter on the house. And it took several minutes before we realized, no, 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 that, that, the, the suspect is not in that house and crime scene tape's getting up and we bring in medics for Dave because Dave's got, a, I think, a broken eye orbital. His nose mm-hmm. is broken. He got hit hit with a, a Broken face. Yeah, his, his face is, <clears throat> was... Uh, was pretty messed up. So we made sure that, that he was good to go. I was kind of debriefing him. Hey, did you, did you see anybody else? Did you see a second shooter? And he's like, no, no, I didn't. I only, I only saw the one guy. I only saw the one guy. And then from, from that point forward, we kind of commandeer a, uh, the Washington County's armored vehicle, a Bearcat. And then we raced every time that, that uh, we were getting information of where the second suspect, they were pinging his phones, they were tracking him mm-hmm. digitally a few different, a couple of different ways. And then he would, he would call and, uh, you know, kind of loosely disclose where, where he was. And we, we raced this Bearcat all over the city looking for that second shooter until we finally found him mm-hmm. and then took him into custody. Wow. Yeah. I remember hearing you on the air during all that for some reason. That was a, that was a chaotic day. Yeah, do you you may not remember this, but uh, I had an officer involved shooting, and you came. You took. You were one of the first cops. One of the you were. They I were going to make you my monitoring officer. I remember it clearly. And, and they and you took my shotgun from me. I did. And uh, you, I remember this is a little embarrassing. You're like, why is this shotgun squad ready? Because I <laughs> you changed it back. I, I changed it back right. squad ready. Yes, you did. You know, and uh, and I remember thinking at the time I'm a relatively new cop, and you <laughs> and you're like, oh boy, I'm going to get yelled at. Oh no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I told you that you did a great job. All right, thanks. I yeah. didn't remember that. Well, you were—you had just shot somebody. So. Yeah, but you—you you said it so quietly. <laughs> That's me. Little, little girl voice. Didn't mean it. Yes, yes. Boy yes. Boy, I shouldn't have said it that <laughs> way. But um, anyway, um, the uh, what was um, let me, the one thing I want to do? I ask you about the SWAT team. Okay. Is uh, first I'm going to ask you this, and then you think about it. Or no, here I'm going to ask you what was. Um, um, is it true that they have this kind of, they use the term debrief after SWATs, that's a, like, um, what would I call it, park your ego kind of thing? 
Yeah. What's that about? So, uh, so explain to the listening group what what that's about. Great question. So, what you're referring to is a debrief. Some people refer to the Army, in fact, refers to it as an AAR, an after action review. After every mission that the SWAT team does, when they the vehicles pull back into the the SWAT garage, everybody gets out of the vehicle. Some people will take their, their you know their helmets off, ground their weapons. Some people will take off their vests. Some people will leave it on, but they'll they'll form up into a big circle. And they'll talk about from the start to finish everything that happened. So they kind of do a talk through of what happened in chronological order, team by team. And then once they do that, they'll talk about, okay, what went right, what went wrong, and what can we improve? And in this debrief, in this circle, there's no rank. And it's very, it's a very blunt conversation there's no need to you know have a a, a ton of manners if you see somebody screw something up and you don't say anything about it who's to say that that officer doesn't make an even more egregious mistake on the next one and put someone's life or their life in even greater danger so it's incumbent upon each officer that if you see somebody doing something wrong maybe you didn't cover down to the right when you knew that i was covering left maybe you didn't cover that upstairs window when you knew that there was a potential threat up in that window. When I went in here, went in through this door, you knew that I was going to be number one and you should have known that you were going to be number two. Yet I went in the room by myself and there was a three to four or five second gap where my back was exposed. These are the little things that we talk about. And we talk about those mistakes for the sole purpose of not repeating them. Because if you don't talk about them and you don't acknowledge the fact that you do make mistakes and no mission is perfect, there's always going to be mistakes that are made. Your goal with a debrief is to prevent copying those mistakes and continually repeating, repeating them. So you do have to put your ego aside because someone of a lesser rank might tell you, Sergeant, Commander, yeah. that you screwed this up. When we were going up the stairs, you were supposed to have high cover, and yet you were covering forward, and you dropped high cover. Why did you do that? And if you like, how dare you say that to me? I'm of a higher rank than you. Then you're missing the entire point. Hmm. The officer is actually trying to do you a favor and make the team better. And that's one that's, that's not easy. And that sound, everybody that's listening is like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I like where that's, I like how that sounds, but it's not always easy to do. Setting your ego aside is not, it, not I think always it's, easy. I'm guessing it's also not easy to do because of the SWAT members have a certain personality type, high performance. Correct. High, um, I'm super, I'm skilled and mm-hmm. I do things correctly and carefully. So then you get called out on it and you, you're going to get your feelings hurt. In a sense, <clears throat> you're halfway right. Uh, those officers do operate at a high level and they know They do have a certain level of confidence, but this is the way it is from day one, hour one on the SWAT team. Everything that you do in training, you're being critiqued on and it's, they'll, they'll, if you did 15 things wrong, they're going to tell you about all 15, not just the, we're not going to pick two and well, we don't want to hurt this person's feelings. They're going to tell you all 15 things that you did wrong Yeah, and you get used to it. You start to. You actually start to embrace it and welcome it. I want yeah. you to tell me when I screw right. up because I want to make sure that I go home at the end you of the shift. You become coachable. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah. you become this big piece of clay that's moldable. And people that don't, don't do well with that aren't going to stay on the team long. So it's something that you actually get used to and you actually start to look forward to. And, and, then, and then you have a lot of SWAT officers 
that will demand that that carry over to patrol roll calls. Why would we only do debriefs on the SWAT team? Why aren't, why aren't we doing that at the patrol level? When you go to that hot call, that mm-hmm. bank robbery, that kidnapping, that CSE, right. that car chase that ends, ends uh, in a perimeter, we should be definitely talking about that either that night or the following roll call where we're all in the same room. And hey, let's talk about what went right last night. Let's talk about what went wrong. And let's talk about what we can do different and better the next time. That's how we mature. That's how we evolve. That's how we grow. That's how we become a better department. I remember um, when I was on FTO, my primary FTO was Gene Barber, who was a great FTO for me. Mm-hmm. And and Guy Stanton was one of my bosses. And I remember one of the first calls, very first day, Gene tells, break out the shotgun and, and, and cover this or that. And then I remember the next day, Guy Stanton said <laughs> something to the effect of, I know we're day cops. But we could have done a better job on that, and he just kind of picked apart that. And I'm thinking, wow, that's I was impressed by that. I yes. mean, one is that let's not get we're a bunch of day cops, not including me, but a bunch of experienced cops. Let's not feel like we're doing everything right because we sure did it on that call. And he was very specific, and he took some took some leadership issues with himself as well. It was just a really good experience, you know. And Absolutely. One of the worst things that we can do is go into those chaotic scenes that are complex and, and risky and high threat. The worst thing that we can do is have the attitude that all's well that ends well. Yeah. Hey, nobody got hurt yesterday, That's so great. everything must, we must have done everything correctly. In, in truth, no, we got lucky. We made a lot of mistakes, and we're fools if we don't talk about them and address them. That is a really, that's a very good point about um, just because something went right, mm-hmm. um, doesn't, shouldn't give you overconfidence that uh, it did right. Um, one more thing before I take a, uh, do a commercial here, I was going to mention that uh, one thing that I want to point out, and I think we talked about this earlier and another time we were visiting about it, is how um, sometimes the SWAT has a reputation of, I don't even want to give you a negative connotation of it, but sometimes they have a personality type and maybe outsiders, but we were talking about how thoughtful, I don't know if that's the right word, how strategic, how, um, I don't know, is thoughtful the right word? Um, you know, you, you really do a cost-benefit ratio, like any cop does that, but in SWAT, I mean, you are really doing a lot. Right, so you want to talk about that now or do your commercial first? Okay, I'll just get the commercial out of the way. Because <laughs> normally what I say is think about that or think about something you thought I was going to ask you well, about. My answer is ready to roll. All right, right so hang on a second. This is my commercial to promote this guy. Um, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you might be also interested in my book, uh, Good Cop, Good Cop, A Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. Uh, I don't talk about much SWAT stuff there, but I talk about some other things that we talked about in this podcast, or in this in this uh, podcast, I guess. Um, the book is in print or an audio, audio book as well. Uh, some cops don't like to read books, but they like to listen to them, and it can be purchased through Amazon. Uh, you can also find out more information about uh, the podcast, the book, uh, Blue Watch Officer Wellness Training at goodcopgoodcop.com. All right, back at you there. All right, so is there an identity or a classification of your typical SWAT officer? I think that there is. There's an outdated one, the stereotype that your SWAT officers are, let's just call them knuckle draggers. They're just, they're big guys, kind of one-dimensional. All they really know is how to kick doors in and then go in and catch bad guys. 
And that may, may have been partly true when Daryl Gates creates SWAT for LAPD based on the events that happened in Austin, Texas at the, uh, uh, at the clock tower, um, Charles Whitman killed, killed those people. And that was basically the evolution or the, the birth of SWAT. And yeah, did, did they get all the, the big guys and a lot of Vietnam veterans on SWAT teams back then? Yeah. Yeah, they did. But SWAT, SWAT has really evolved, uh, over the past four decades. And if you actually five decades, if you, if you look at the people that are on our SWAT team, they're your hardest working police officers. They're your best, your brightest, they're highly intelligent and they're typically very good decision makers under stress. So one of the things that is incredibly important in SWAT that I don't care how good of a shooter you are. I don't care how much you can bench press. I don't care how fast you are. You can be the greatest athlete, greatest shooter. But once you go into that threat environment, whether it's a two-story house, a warehouse, a business, a school, a movie theater, if you can't interpret what you're seeing and diagnose the problems that's, that's in front of you in a very compressed time frame, you're not going to make good decisions. And that stands to reason, right? I don't think any, that comes as a surprise to anybody, but here's the kicker. Here's the hard thing. It's very difficult to make intelligent solution or intelligent decisions and diagnose problems correctly without having an excellent situational awareness. Well, what are some of the physiological things that happen to the human body under stress? Now you're going into a threat environment. Perhaps this is a warrant for a homicide suspect, for somebody that killed another human being 48 hours ago. You don't think that you're going to have a tremendous amount of, of, uh, chemical enzymes through the brain. You got serotonin, adrenaline, you've got all these endorphins and what that's doing. And we all know this is you've got things like tachypsia where it's the distortion of time, time slows down or time speeds up. You've got auditory exclusion where you don't hear your sergeant yelling at you to speed up, slow down, shift left, shift right. Hey, threat on the stairwell, cover him. You're not hearing those things. You're not seeing what you need to see. You've got tunnel vision. The human brain is, is amazing in the sense that in a fight or flight situation, your you know, tunnel, tunnel vision is, is very purpose built into the human brain. It, it allows the eyes to see with great clarity in a narrow band typically where the, you know, you're looking at the threat and you need to see in great detail and analyze what's happening. That's what tunnel vision helps you do. But tunnel vision doesn't help you get situational awareness because now you're not seeing what's the threat to the left, the threat to the right, threat to the rear, threat above, threat below. So you're, you're unable to make accurate decisions because of tunnel vision, which all also makes sense. Here's the problem is if you can't force yourself to calm down in this threat environment, so you're, even though that you know that there's potentially a person in the next room that could kill you, you've got to find a way to slow your heart rate down, slow those chemical enzymes racing through your brain that are may help, you know, not contributing to good decision-making, open your eyes, relax, see what you need to see because then and only then can you make the intelligent decisions that you need to make. And that's what separates SWAT officers from, from 
people that don't make it on SWAT teams. People, mm-hmm. like I said, you can, again, you can be a great athlete, great shooter, be an absolute rock star on the shooting range. But once you get into that, that shoot house or that training house and you can't comprehend, should I go right here? Or should I go left here? When I go to this door and it's a center fed room, which way do I go? Well, if it's a corner fed room, which way do I go? What if I'm the number two person, the number three person, then where do I go? And all those things change. There's so many variables with SWAT. And if you can just stick to two rules, you're going to do SWAT well. Number one, cover your threats. Number two, protect your partners. If you can do those two things, you're doing SWAT correctly. Cover your threats, protect your partners. People get wrapped around the axle of, okay, when I come to a, a stairwell that comes up to an open landing, where should I be? Where should I stand? How should I move? Don't worry about all those things. Ask yourself two questions. Am I covering my threats? And am I protecting my partners? If I can answer yes and yes, then I'm doing SWAT right. But again, it goes back to you've, you've got to force, and it's very difficult to do when you're brand new to force yourself to be relaxed when everyone's watching you, everyone's critiquing your every move. And, and we do have a certain ego where we don't like being told that we're making mistakes. So now we're even more on edge and we're more robotic. And the more robotic you get, the more mistakes you make. And I felt like when I came onto the SWAT team, it was a full two years before, and, and thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions before I felt comfortable that regardless of what environment you throw me in, I know which way to go based on what I'm seeing, based on my ability to, to relax my mind, open my eyes, rapidly interpret what's in front of me, to the left of me, and to the right of me, and then then very quickly, okay, what are my three best choices? Okay, pick one. And then this is all happening in, in sub-second time frames. And you just get good at it. And you, you then your teammates are doing the same thing. And now you're feeding off of each other and you, you find a rhythm, you find a flow. But only once everybody has that ability to rapidly interpret your, your terrain and then make those decisions. And then you're, you're feeling and, and you're feeling and knowing what the partners around you are doing. It's, it's, it's a, that trains a lot and knows exactly how to flow through a building. It's an amazing sight to watch. Yeah, I, I, I know that to be true because of like even searching buildings with guys that are on like we, at St. Paul, we don't have a full time SWAT team. We have guys that well, that are have other jobs and then are also on the SWAT team. So regular patrol cops, you end up searching buildings with guys on a SWAT team and right. just they're just so much better at it mm-hmm. or just so good at it. I would just say they are you know? they're phenomenal they're, and, and And I think what it is, um, you mentioned the word I can't come up with right now, but it's a certain just proficiency mm-hmm. and efficiency. One thing I, we can end here, but one thing I wanted to thought of a kind of a way to capsulate some of the things, both when you were talking about the King Wenchura shooting and even um, SWAT, um, f- f- you know, getting the focus on covering your threat and protecting your partner. Both of those things, like even in the intensity of the King Wenchura uh, shootout, we'll call it, um, what was what's important now? I mean, I know right. there's some. Uh, curriculum that uses that phrase which it makes a lot of sense to me for every cop listening when things get intense or things get um, novel (laughs) or things don't go like you planned Mm -hmm. is to quickly form to to ask that question what's important now absolutely and and police officers find themselves in foreign strange uh, there's no way an academy can Mm -hmm. prepare you 
for every situation that you're going to be in. So it's not uncommon the first several years as a police officer that you find yourself in a situation like, holy cow, I have no idea what to do. I remember um, on my, I believe, second year on the job, I get called to what, what used to be the ground round on Suburban because there's a naked man um, trying to get inside this, the, the business. It's a restaurant and they've locked all the doors. And as I pull up, Sheila Lambie had gotten there right before I did. And I'm pulling in the driveway and there is a large, muscular, naked, and I mean, there's not a stitch of clothing on this guy. And he's rubbing himself on Sheila Lambie's driver's side door of her squad car. And I'm pulling up and I'm like, oh, I don't really have a game plan for this. Right. I have yeah. no clue where to even start. Yeah. I, I, and he's like, this is not the best time to make this up on the fly, but the Just Academy go, didn't cover this. You go advised. <laughs> um, did you need anything, Sheila? Uh, yeah. Away? We, no. Um, so yes, thanks a lot, sure. commander. Um, really interesting. And, uh, I thought we'd end up talking more SWAT stuff, which we ended up doing, but well, we, cer- that, we can certainly talk No, no, more. no. That other stuff was, I don't dang- have a curfew for another two hours. <laughs> um, so really, thanks. Uh, was there anything I, that you thought I was going to ask you about that I didn't? How much? To, I mean, I would love to talk about, um, if you don't mind, sure. the whole vilification of the warrior mindset and Ooh. how this might take a few minutes if you're okay with it. I am. Okay. So, And, and, and I just want to point out, the, the, the reason that I had this cover for the book, mm-hmm. to me, is to pay some for lack of respect and homage homage what's sure homage is that the right word yeah it is to uh even force the use of force because without it our society doesn't function if there's a group of people like us cops correct gonna make people follow certain rules absolutely at the end of the day you know when people are misbehaving and become a threat to society somebody's got to come and deal with those people and the thing about cops which I think is interesting. A lot of us are like, I'll do that. Right. I'm, I'm good at that. Mm-hmm. That's something that I'm willing to do. I've been trained and practiced and, you know, where many in society are like, Oh, that sounds horrible. Like I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, can I'm actually good that. at that, you know? And, yeah. uh, but what, what are you going to say about that? So there's been a movement that after police shootings that we've got to get rid of war quote unquote warrior training, the warrior mentality. And I would submit to you that if you look at all of the high profile killings of unarmed black men, those officers were not warriors. If you go back and look at Rodney King way back in 1991, the officers that were trying to take Rodney King into custody at the end of that pursuit were not warrior trained. Warrior-trained officers would know that after one or two baton strikes, assuming they even started with baton strikes, were ineffective. He's down on his knees. Is he completely compliant and putting his hands behind his back? No, he's not doing that. He's, he's, he's under, the, under the influence of a controlled substance, so he's not following directions. But why are we hitting him with, with I don't know if they had PR-24s or ASP, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we continuing to hit him? Wouldn't it be better just to get him in an escort 
uh, a two hand or two two officer escort get the hands behind the back and get him cuffed? Why are we still hitting him? So obviously, in in the, at the end of the Rodney King, uh, the beating, there's a massive riot throughout Los Angeles. Over one billion dollars worth of damage, and over fifty people are killed. And these these officers weren't warrior trained. They warriors would have known how to a much better way to deal with it, much more effective, more efficient, and would have caused a lot less trauma to Rodney King and a lot less trauma to the city of L.A. If we go back to NYPD's dealing with Amado Diallo in 1999. They were looking, there were four plainclothes NYPD officers looking for a serial rapist. They find Mr. Diallo. Uh, he fits the you know, loose description of, of the person they're looking for. And as they're asking you know, for identification, he reaches in and he's pulling his wallet out of his pocket. And he's shot. Uh, they fire 41 rounds at him and they hit him 19 times. And he's pulling a wallet out of his, his pocket, and that's all they did. Uh, the city paid out $3 million, and four officers are indicted. I contend that those none of those officers were warrior officers. Officers would have, warrior officers, officers that are comfortable with combatives, they're comfortable with with grappling, with strikes, uh, takedowns. They're, they're proficient in countering strikes and takedowns. They understand the human anatomy. They know how joint manipulation works. They know how pain compliance works. Officers, officers that are skilled in those skill sets don't shoot Amado Diallo. They don't. They recognize that he's, if, if, if he pulls out a gun, we'll deal with it then. But prior to that happening, I'm not going to fire at this person. Deadly force, I haven't met the, the, the need for, for deadly force at that point. Fast forward to uh, 2014 in Chicago, Laquan McDonald, 17-year-old kid. He's high on PCP. He's got a three-inch knife on him. He's walking down the street. People call 911. Hey, this guy looks like you know he's acting erratically. Officers get there. They tell him to drop the knife. And because the officer chooses not to use cover correctly and thinks, well, he, he's within 21 feet of me, so therefore, you know, he's... he's uh, deadly force threat when he doesn't drop the knife he opens fire on him he hits him seven 16 times and the officer is charged with first degree murder convicted of second degree murder and is sentenced to six and a half year prison sentence and there's a five million dollar payout by chicago pd again i submit to you that this officer was not a warrior officer wasn't trained as a warrior was not was not uh, confident in his ability to deal with a, a, a what we would call a no person and the only tool in his toolbox is his handgun. He doesn't know how to use ASR. He's not comfortable with using a taser. He's not comfortable uh, de-escalating the situation, creating space, and getting behind cover. And he, he forces himself into a deadly force situation that didn't need to be there. He wasn't a warrior. You wouldn't even hear about Rodney King or any of these other incidents if you didn't have officers that were highly trained in the use of force in dealing with these people. I think we need to double down on warrior training because warriors make much better decisions. And there's this whole theory that if we teach officers all these combative skills, how to strike, how to, how to do joint manipulation, how to do escort holds, how to do, uh, 
any any number of, of different control measures that by virtue of the fact that we've trained a minute that they're going to be more likely to use it indiscriminately and whenever they choose to do it like there's there there's somehow you can't have one without the other and i contend that they are indeed mutually exclusive in fact a person that's highly trained in the application of use of force is less likely to use force and i'm a big proponent i'm a big fan of saying and thinking that it is much easier to teach a warrior to be nice be professional and be empathetic than it is to teach a nice person who's empathetic to deal with the violent people. Hmm. And I don't think if, if anybody can, can refute that and tell me that any of those cases that I just talked about, that they think that those officers were quote unquote warrior trained. I'd love to have that conversation. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And even what you said there at the end about, um, uh, some of the negative commentary about warrior is because of the people that are the supposedly nice people that don't know Correct. what that what that means. And I like your attitude that we should, uh, instead of small-mindedly just throw that out as if it's somehow yeah. we've, un- we've, unhelpful, instead we say what we we apply it more accurately to we we actually like you said double down on it and apply it more accurately to the behavior that we think is necessary and valuable in policing right and it's it has a lot to do with the fact that we've taken we've taken input from so many civilian sectors that are quick to judge law enforcement yet they've never been in a violent confrontation they're not expected to deal with people that are under the influence of controlled substance that don't want to go back to jail don't want to go back to prison well hey if i get to a domestic and this guy's beating the snot out of his wife, girlfriend, whatever. I don't have the luxury of, of backing out and waiting for backup while this guy caves in her face. I've got to act. I've got to go in there and, and use force and take this person down. I, mean, I can't imagine. And then we're, we're, we're constantly subjected to criticism by people that have never been in a fight. And I'm, I'm fine with that, but I'm also not fine with it. Can you imagine you know, an auto mechanic you know, working for the Federal Aviation Administration and, hey, can you diagnose uh, all the, you know, the information from this black box of a 727 and tell us what the pilot did wrong and tell us how the pilot could do better? We would never, that's laughable. We would never do that. Yet we have people constantly telling us how to do, how to do police work. And again, we're, we do need to change. We do need to get better. But we do need to change and we do need to get better, but we are also very good at our jobs too. I agree. I agree, but we've got people that are telling us that the root of all this evil and the reason that all these bad shootings keep happening is because of warrior training, and they couldn't be more wrong. It's not warrior training at all. That's right. I just actually I put something about that in the dedication of the book, and I remember I... You're a visionary. Well, not really. I, mean, it's, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to speak to that a little bit. And, Good. And when Dan and... Um, Dan and Brian were here, as well as most people I've done the podcast with. The, the reason they're on the podcast is because not only are they good decision makers, which is a part of being a good warrior, Yes. but I think of them that way as well. Um, let's see. Thank Thanks a lot, Commander. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Now get back to work. Stay safe. Stay safe.